0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, I'm going to sit down with our associate curator, Jesse McLeod, to discuss our, uh, one of our most recent exhibits called Lives Bound Together, uh, which explores the history of the enslaved and their uh, lives at Mount Vernon, and how those lives were intertwined with the Washington family. Uh, the exhibit is still open until 2020, if you would like to come see it. Uh, and if you don't think you're going to have the chance to come out and view it in person, uh, there's also an exhibit guide available uh, that you can go to. If you just go to our uh, show page at mountvernon.org slash podcast, you'll be able to, to go to a link to it there. And uh, now my interview with Jesse. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show this afternoon.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Um, so just to start off, what's the uh, the timeline for, for uh, the Lives Bound Together exhibit? When did it go, first go up?
1: So it opened in October of 2016, and it was initially slated to be a two-year exhibit, but we've been very excited that it has been extended. So it will, by the time it closes, it will have been up for four years. So it will be closing in the fall of 2020.
0: Great. Um, now, I think for a lot of folks that aren't uh, as familiar with sort of the, uh, the behind the scenes of how um, museums operate and what all work has to go into putting together a major exhibit like this um they maybe don't realize uh sometimes the amount of lead time that an exhibit um takes so what what was sort of the walk us through that if you would
1: Yeah, that's definitely something that most people don't realize. They imagine that you kind of get the objects and labels together and then throw them up in the museum. But it is a very long and complicated process. So we first decided to do the exhibit in the spring of 2013, so about three and a half years before it opened. And I'd say... um, the really hard work um, where it consumed pretty much all of my time was about two years um, before the opening. Um so two to three years of pretty intense work. And we really started on kind of a more basic general level, figuring out what themes we wanted to discuss in the exhibit, how we wanted to structure it, um, what objects we wanted to include, that sort of thing. and then we really um, Narrowed down from there. We worked with a designer, an exhibit designer, and a graphic designer who helped us conceptualize how we would display those objects and themes in the space of the museum. We did some supplemental research. A lot of the research on slavery at Mount Vernon had already been done. We were fortunate in that regard. So we had a great body of scholarship to build on. And a lot of that uh, was the work of Mary Thompson, the research historian here who has been studying slavery in George Washington for more than two decades. So we had a lot of information. It was just a matter of, of massaging it and figuring out what to highlight. Uh, So we went from that kind of research information gathering phase to label writing, um, where we wrote introductory labels and specific object labels, Um, and then leading up to the actual opening of the exhibit itself, we um, worked with mount makers who basically uh, designed safe ways to display Mm -hmm. objects so that they can't be knocked over or um, so that the most interesting side of the piece is showing, that sort of thing. Um, and we had a lot of archaeological artifacts in the exhibit, so sometimes those were strangely shaped or um, required certain creative methods to display them. Um, we also, in in the, the weeks leading up, had to paint the galleries, construct certain walls, um, make sure that um, everything was looking good uh, in order to install all of the objects. Um, and then the final steps um, were you know, putting the labels up on the wall, installing all of the multimedia, making sure that everything functioned properly. Um, and then we were ready to open. So there were really a lot of steps kind of starting at the very broad, high theoretical mm-hmm. level and then getting down to the really tangible nitty gritty
0: Well, and I think that might be sort of a good way to to sort of go from here. So what were the sort of broad um, themes that you all wanted to make sure uh, were included in the exhibit or that you explored with the visitor
1: Yeah, so the one that we really landed on as the overarching theme was that the lives of George Washington and the men, women, and children enslaved at Mount Vernon were deeply interconnected. So you can't understand Washington's life without understanding the lives of these people who lived and labored at Mount Vernon uh, through no choice of their own. So really, that centrality of slavery to Washington's life was what we really wanted to get across. Because as an institution, Mount Vernon is dedicated to exploring Washington's life and his world. And slavery was a really integral part of that world. And I think institutions like Mount Vernon haven't always acknowledged how central slavery was. So it was really important to us to make sure that this wasn't seen as a side story. It was Mm -hmm. seen as part of the main story. And then within that, we had a few other key messages that we really wanted people to understand. We wanted to look at how enslaved labor was central to the operation of the Mount Vernon Plantation, so how this place was a success because enslaved people were working in the fields, maintaining the Washington's household, cooking their meals, working in the gristmill and distillery, all of the things that were making uh, Washington profit and maintaining his elite lifestyle, uh, were largely done through enslaved labor. We also wanted to look at how Washington's views on slavery changed over time. So he went from somebody who was a pretty typical Virginia plantation owner as a younger man to somebody who, after the Revolutionary War, becomes quite conflicted about slavery. So we wanted to explore why that change happened and then how that played out in his life. And ultimately, he chooses to free the enslaved people he owned directly in his will, but that story is actually quite complicated mm-hmm. because he didn't technically own a lot of the people who were here, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little more later. Um, and then finally, the third key message we wanted to get across was uh, exploring how these individual enslaved people uh, responded to the conditions of enslavement with. Uh, resilience, resistance, and creativity. So, how people who, uh, through no fault of their, no fault of their own, merely through the circumstances of their birth, uh, were thrust into this position where they were in a state of servitude, mm-hmm. and uh, despite that, they were able to carve out lives for themselves and find ways to. Um, to to really survive and and live in this world that denied their humanity. And one thing that makes Mount Vernon unusual is the amount of documentation that we have. So we can really piece together the lives of individual people in a way that few other historic sites can. So we can really pull together biographies of people and look at, in some cases, their lives from birth to death and really understand them as human beings, not just as abstract statistics. Mm-hmm. So really making the story personal was very important to us.
0: Well, I think it's it's interesting um, what you were saying there about how uh, the circumstances of Mount Vernon and, and, and sort of Washington specifically make this... Uh, able to, more possible to tell the the story of the enslaved here, is that uh, a function of just sort of so much light being cast onto the figure of Washington that there's um, or, or is that is that it or why is that?
1: Yeah, um, it's It's because of Washington's prominence, and that manifests in a few different ways that that make the research easier. So Washington produced a lot of papers through his military service, through Mm -hmm. his presidential service. Um, And it's interesting— almost all of his correspondence, especially his personal correspondence, you can find some connection to slavery. Even if a letter isn't about slavery, Mm -hmm. there'll be a note at the end that references something at Mount Vernon, or his thoughts on his latest scheme to try to extricate himself from slavery, or a reference to the weekly reports that overseers sent to Washington during the presidency where he is questioning whether things are running efficiently. So, really, if you read against the grain in Mm -hmm. a lot of these letters, you can pull out uh, specific references. Um, So part of it is just the volume of correspondence. Um, But the other thing is that so much of his correspondence was saved. So even if he had produced a lot, if we didn't have that now, that wouldn't do us much good. But because Washington was so prominent, even during his lifetime, his papers were considered sacred and people did save them. So we have a lot of material to work with. And so the third third thing um, that is really important um, and helpful is that Washington himself was a meticulous record keeper and he really monitored things on his plantation in a way that other plantation owners didn't. Um, so Washington um, would record in his diary very specific details about Enslaved laborers, sometimes even by name, he would have his overseers, as I mentioned, send him these weekly reports during the presidency that would essentially account for all of the available labor and how it was used. And even when he's serving as president, Washington is reading those in extreme detail and questioning uh, whether labor is being allotted efficiently and and uh, you know if somebody's listed as ill. Um, he questions you know, whether they're feigning illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's really, really consumed with what is happening on his plantation. Um, and the result of that is that we can now look at those documents and see, oh, Caroline was ill that week, and then she was ill the following week, I wonder what was happening. Now we have a, an account from George Washington's doctor that notes that he prescribed a medication for Caroline. And we can kind of piece together the dots um, and see what was happening in people's lives Even though those documents weren't generated for the purpose of documenting Mm -hmm. their lives, Washington unwittingly wrote the biographies of these people um, in in a limited way, of course, but it's so much better than what most other historic sites have. Uh, So we're really quite fortunate.
0: Um, I mean, so so somewhat, you know, Mount Vernon is the most visited historic home in America. Uh, So does that also have an effect on sort of the challenges and opportunities uh, we have to talk about slavery and the enslaved people that lived here?
1: Yeah, it it definitely presents both challenges and opportunities. The opportunity is that we have this huge audience Mm -hmm. that we can reach. We have a million visitors a year who are coming here primed to learn about the history of this place. So we uh, just by that sheer volume, we can really inform a lot of people. Um, The challenge, of course, is that many people come here not necessarily expecting to learn about slavery. Um, They come here often with a very idealized vision of George Washington and anything that might paint him in a less than positive light, they react negatively to. Um, So it can be a challenge figuring out how to get this information across and um, without uh, generating hostility among visitors who maybe aren't quite prepared to learn about some of the more difficult truths of Washington's life uh, so that was something that we definitely considered as we were putting the exhibition together how can we make sure that uh, we we reach people who maybe aren't eager to learn about this difficult history
0: well and that sort of leads me to my next question because um, you mentioned a lot about museum labels and I, I I've uh, gotten the opportunity to write a few in my life, uh, but never nearly as many as, as, as you all do. And I, I definitely think people don't realize uh, I'll, I'll specifically even call out a lot of you know, sort of more uh, traditional academic historians that write long monographs may not actually realize how hard it is to write 200 words on a particular uh, topic and, and specifically 200 words for as you put it, you know an audience that maybe isn't expecting to learn about. A certain thing. So, could you walk us through sort of how you all go about that, and what what work goes into even just writing one museum label?
1: Mm-hmm. And two hundred words is actually a really long, a long word museum, museum word. label. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if we get two hundred words, we're really <laughs> yeah. excited. Um, although the problem is, realistically, most people won't read a two hundred yeah. word label, um, even if we are excited to be able to say mm-hmm. that much. And honestly, if I think about myself going to museums. I don't always read labels that are that yeah. long unless I'm really, really excited about the topic and really interested.
0: Yeah. I mean, so so, so quick side note, because I just have to ask is, as another museum geek, do you find, I find I'm the most horrible person to go to a museum exhibit because I'm so busy looking at how they did it. Mm-hmm. I'm not actually <laughs> looking at what it is yeah. they're talking about. Do you suffer from that same oh, yes. problem? <laughs>
1: oh, yes. I love going to museums, but every time I go, I'm like, oh, that label wasn't... <laughs> edited very well. Or that's a really cool mount. I wonder how yeah. that's attached to the wall. Like, yeah, I, it's definitely um, I, I love museums and I, I love going but it does feel like it's not really escaping from yeah. from work in a lot so of some, ways. Some
0: levels, like, medical doctors make the worst patients.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: yeah. But sorry, back to, <laughs> back to the, the main question. Uh, how did you all approach writing um, the labels and sort of getting into the nitty gritty of designing some of the exhibits, especially knowing... Um, The audience might not necessarily even want to be learning about this topic, but let's assume they did bother to read it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was something we wanted to be very deliberate about and make sure that we gave ourselves enough time to really be thoughtful in our approach um, and make sure that the labels were as effective Mm -hmm. as possible. So one thing that we did for this exhibit that we had never really done for any other special exhibits here was a number of focus groups and more informal kind of evaluation Mm -hmm. efforts. And we especially wanted to ensure that we did that with diverse audiences Mm -hmm. and especially African-American audiences, because um, the staff at Mount Vernon is largely white. And I think we all have our own biases or just things that we never really consider. Um, And it's really important to make sure that we think about the way that our message Mm -hmm. is received by people with a variety of perspectives. So we, we did a lot of um, presenting label text and also certain design elements to two different audiences. We partnered with the Alexandria Black History Museum, which is part of the Office of Historic Alexandria. And uh, they were able to get a number of their uh, members and and stakeholders to come and and help us out. And we also have a number of descendants that we worked with who can trace their ancestry back to people who were enslaved here at Mount Vernon. Um, And we worked closely with them as well as Black Women United for Action, which is a group we partner with to do a commemoration every year Mm -hmm. to honor the enslaved people. So we tried to work with a number of groups to um, review our text and kind of identify anything that was either unclear or suggested that we were um, not fully engaging with the perspective of enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the biggest challenges in writing the labels was considering both the perspective of George Washington, which we do pretty automatically here at Mount Vernon, and also considering the perspective of enslaved people. And it was really important to me to really pull out the perspective of enslaved people because I think that has not often been yeah. discussed sufficiently. And so one one thing that we... That was at least at the front of my mind as I was drafting all of these labels was considering both of those perspectives and making sure that whatever we were discussing, we were acknowledging that different people had very different views on uh, the same event or the same topic. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was one thing that made keeping the labels short and concise, pretty challenging, because we were trying to really get people to consider these these multiple perspectives. Um, so, for example, one thing that we discuss in the exhibit is how enslaved people resisted uh, being in bondage. And there are, there's a wide array of different techniques that enslaved people used, um, sometimes as dramatic as running away, but sometimes it was actually quite small actions that on a daily basis um, could give them a a feeling of control in an environment where they had very little. So for example, they might work slowly or break a tool that they needed to do their work so that they wouldn't have to continue working. And Washington, when he's talking about these incidents, he often complains that his enslaved laborers aren't efficient, or he suggests that they're lazy or that they're not good workers. And if we took Washington's word for it, we would just be repeating something that is really coming from his perspective. And when we think about it critically now, we can recognize that those were probably deliberate choices on the part of enslaved people as a way to resist their labor and in a way to kind of reclaim time and materials that were being stolen from them because they weren't being compensated for their labor. So I think it's really important when you're talking about Washington's description of that event to also present what enslaved people likely would have been thinking. And one thing I haven't mentioned yet that is a fundamental challenge with this topic is that we don't have documents from the perspective mm-hmm. of enslaved people for the most part, because they weren't given the opportunity to learn to read or write. They weren't producing papers like Washington was. So we really have to be creative. We have to kind of speculate uh, using informed speculation based on historical evidence, Um to kind of imagine what what might have been going through their heads. And of course, we also do have oral history from descendants that can fill in some of the gaps as well. Um, but getting back to the label writing, that was that was one of the biggest challenges was trying to ensure that this perspective that's been lost was included um, and doing that in a way that kept to the fifty to one hundred yeah. word limit <laughs> for a lot of those labels.
0: Yeah, you heard that, professors, 50 to 100 words. Yes,
1: <laughs> it, it goes by very quickly. 50 yeah. words is basically two sentences. I'm
0: trying to think, is that is that basically a tweet? No. Well,
1: tweets now, or, well, I guess tweets are characters, not words.
0: Yeah, well, that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah. Where you could sort of convert that to, but.
1: Yeah, I think 50 words is basically a, a tweet now, yeah. since they lengthen yeah. the character limit.
0: Yeah, not that we should compare museum labels to tweets very 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 thoughtful tweets
1: well honestly (laughs) it's the skill is is not that different in terms of trying to like every word matters in Mm -hmm. a tweet in the same way that every word matters in a museum label and that's another big part of the process is editing and making sure that you give yourself enough time to to write a draft let it sit and then go back and um, you know, you can really, you know, can you find a way to say this thing you you said in three words and just one word? Yeah. Um, it's really, and that's true of any editing, but it's especially pronounced well, with labels.
0: Well, and and then, you know, to get like really nerdy here and do it with, I mean, what is the sort of industry standard for the level of vocabulary you can use?
1: Yeah, it's each institution does it slightly differently. Yeah. It, it depends on, on the audience, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, I think a lot of places do like sixth to eighth grade level. Mm-hmm. Um, with this exhibit, we didn't explicitly identify a level. We kind of um, just used our, yeah. our judgment. Um, it's tricky because sometimes you're talking about technical things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's one of the challenges, too, is trying to find ways to to explain things um, and, and make topics accessible. And that was where focus groups were really helpful yeah. because people sometimes we don't even realize that we're using specialized vocabulary, but people will ide- identify it if you if you give yourself time to do that evaluation. So, for example, we had one label talking about housing for enslaved people, and it was discussing how some of the structures they lived in were single-room cabins, and then some of them were were two rooms um, that housed two families. And architecturally, in architectural history, that's called a duplex. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, um, that word is still used today, um, but I think it has a slightly different connotation today. And when somebody read a label where we referred to a slave cabin as a duplex, they said, that sounds like you're talking about a condo in Old Town. (laughs) Um, It sounds like something a little more yuppie-ish or... um, you know, expensive in this area, <laughs> at yeah. least. Um, it sounded like to them that we were trying to make it sound nicer than it was. And that certainly wasn't our intent. We were just using the um, the technically correct mm-hmm. uh, vocabulary of that field, but it wasn't something most people are familiar with. So um, there were a few things like that where we had to make sure that we weren't um, using language that could be misinterpreted by people who uh, weren't as familiar with it.
0: Yeah. Well, is there... Uh Particular um, portions of the exhibit you're most proud of?
1: Yeah, I'd say there are really two things that stand out to me. One are a design is a design element that we use throughout the exhibit, um, which are silhouettes that each represent a specific person who was enslaved here, and there are 19 of them. They're conjectural, of course. We don't have images yeah. of these people. Um, uh, but they we our graphic designer who who worked on the exhibit is also a really talented illustrator, and we were able to give her the information that we did have about the person's um, uh, work assignment, their age, their um, uh, physical appearance if there were any descriptions, which there are a couple. And she was able to develop these really evocative, figures that are just silhouettes so you don't see any facial features or um, details, but they are life-size, and I think they really bring a human presence Mm. to the galleries in a way that if we just had their name on a label and a paragraph about them, it wouldn't have been as effective. So I'm really proud of how we were able to devise that element as a way to... um, help visitors make a personal connection to these people and really recognize their humanity. And the responses that we've gotten have validated that that has been an effective tool. And I'd say the the second thing I'm most proud of is the relationships that we were able to develop with descendants. Um, We worked closely with a core group of descendants, about eight to 10 individuals. And we, we did focus groups and had meetings, as I mentioned. We also started an oral history project where we interviewed uh, these folks about their family history and what it meant to them to have this connection to Mount Vernon. And that was really fascinating because they, there's really a wide range of different reactions that people have. Um, and it really just shows that um, this is a very complex mm-hmm. and personal a story, um, but these these people were so amazing in sharing their their family stories with us, and I, I just felt very honored that we had the opportunity to tell this narrative about their ancestors and that they were entrusting us with their family history. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to think about ourselves as stewards of that story in the same way that we're stewards of the objects that are donated to our collection. We don't have a lot of surviving material that's not archaeology from the enslaved community, but we do have this information. We do have these stories. And I think we um, have to recognize that it is a privilege to be able to tell these stories, that we owe the descendants of these people um, our respect and an opportunity to include their voices in uh, the way that we present it. So we, at the end of the exhibit, have a video with excerpts from the oral history interviews that we did um, so that very literally at the end of the exhibit, the voices of descendants mm-hmm. are highlighted. And I think that that is a really powerful way to conclude the exhibit so that people can really see that this is a very personal story and its effects are continuing today.
0: Yeah, so what I was going to mention is it is fascinating the extent to which this still has ramifications um, in in the greater Mount Vernon area to this day. Um, Well, sort of in that general uh, topic of you know the the actual topic of 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 uh, Washington and slavery here at Mount Vernon. Um, where are we at right now with uh, our understanding of enslavement here at Mount Vernon? Um, where do we still need to go? Uh, and is there any sort of um, I don't want to say teasers because that sounds so crass, but you know, can you give our listeners an idea of the directions that Mount Vernon is taking the research right now? Because this is obviously something we're always working on.
1: Yeah. Well, as I said, a lot of research has been done over the last couple of decades, um, and the the 18th century story has been mined pretty thoroughly. Um, Of course, there are avenues to be explored, as there always are. Mm -hmm. You know, research is never finished, Um, but. We, we've we been able to go through almost all of the surviving papers from the 18th century that we're aware of. And one project that was really exciting that developed sort of in conjunction with the exhibit was a database that... Basically, cataloged all of the references to enslaved people in all of Washington's papers or associated papers. So, that's a way that you can uh, search for a specific topic in the database or you can search for a specific person because they tagged references where it was possible to specific people. Um, And you can come up with detailed uh, searches of every time this person appears or every time, you know, there was a a childbirth here on the estate or any time George Washington bought or sold a slave. Um, So that's been incredibly useful and a great way to really feel like we have a handle on that 18th century story. What I would say is an avenue of research that really has a lot of potential that hasn't been explored as thoroughly is the 19th Mm -hmm. century story and what happens after George and Martha Washington die. So I mentioned before that Washington didn't have the legal authority to free many of the people who were here on the estate, and that was because they were owned by the estate of Martha's first husband, Daniel Park Custis, and they were known as the dower slaves because they were Martha's dower share, or her widow's share, of her first husband's estate. And she had life rights to them, but she didn't legally own them, so they were kind of in limbo during her lifetime, and they were bound to pass to the heirs to the Custis estate upon her death. Um, so when she died, uh, the, the Washington slaves had been freed um, because of the provision in Washington's will. And when Martha died in 1802, the Dower slaves were divided into four equal lots and they were inherited by Martha's grandchildren. So um, at that point, the community was dispersed. It had already been divided when the Washington slaves went free, and then it was divided again. And we have some information about what happened to those individuals once they were in the hands of the Custis heirs, but we don't know all that much. And we haven't made a really concerted effort to bring together all of the evidence that does survive from those different sites. So I'm really excited about working with places like Arlington House and Tudor Place and Woodlawn to try to make more connections and try to figure out uh, what we know about people's lives post 1802. And then another part of that story is the people who were freed and many of whom settled in the local area near Mount Vernon or in Alexandria. Um, Some cases it's almost harder to track people who were freed because slave slave owners have an incentive to uh, keep track of their property, but Mm -hmm. once people are free, sometimes they kind of disappear from the record. Um, So, does
0: Virginia require freed enslaved to move out of the state. That's, That's
1: 1806, yeah. um, although the extent to which yeah, that was enforced yeah, 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 is, yeah. is questionable. So a lot of, but that wouldn't have applied to the Washington yeah, slaves because yeah. they were freed before that. Um, so there are a lot of these kind of tantalizing uh, avenues yeah. to pursue. Um, so I'm really excited about kind of continuing the story um, and expanding the, the time period uh, that we're looking at. And then I'll just say one other thing that we're working on here um, in terms of our more public-facing efforts is making sure that the content that's in Lives Bound Together gets expanded to Mm -hmm. all of the parts of our interpretation so getting incorporated into the tours that visitors uh, uh, go through both in the mansion and then also the specialty tours around the estate. Um, And then once Lives Bound Together closes in 2020, we want to make sure that that content and information doesn't go away. So we're hoping to incorporate it into the installations that uh, come after in the museum and the education center, as well as possibly other areas of the estate. So we're working on those plans right now. Great.
0: Um, now, just to get it on the record, because I don't think we've explicitly sort of talked about it, we've talked about how Washington's views evolved, uh, and there's sometimes a tendency to talk, uh, euphemistically sort of describe Washington as more evolved on slavery uh, than some of the other founders, uh, but what is, by the end of his life, to, our, to the best of our knowledge, sort of his his feelings on slavery and uh, slavery's role in the United States, and where is he at?
1: Yeah, um, so Washington's views really shift during the American Revolution, and he emerges from the war with a few different principles that he continues to to hold through the rest of his life. Uh, one is that he's opposed to buying or selling slaves. He uh, no longer, he writes, um, wants to... Personally
0: or sort of legislatively? Well, or,
1: he mostly writes about it in a pers- at a personal level. He says he doesn't want to um, sell slaves as you would cattles in the marketplace. So he kind of recognizes the, the horrors of trafficking in human beings as one would livestock mm-hmm. or other uh, property. Um, however, he continues to engage in such transactions on a small scale when it's convenient for him or when it would benefit him. Um, so he holds that principle, but he doesn't always adhere to it. And that's mm-hmm. a theme that we, we kind of see um, throughout the rest of Washington's life, where he, he proclaims his, his newfound anti-slavery ideals, but the extent to which he acts upon them or lives up to them consistently um, is, is not always quite as, as pure, um so he he's opposed to buying or selling slaves he also mentions that he doesn't want to separate enslaved families he sees he recognizes that as one of the evils of slavery Um, He also is finding, and this is something that started before the war, he's finding that slavery is not a very efficient economic system for his plantation. So he had switched from tobacco, which was the primary cash crop in Virginia for for many years, Um, he had switched from tobacco to wheat in the 1760s. And tobacco is quite labor intensive. It requires a lot of of, um, laborers, in this case, enslaved people, Um, but wheat was much less labor intensive. So Washington found that he had acquired these labors with the goal of growing tobacco. And once he switched to wheat, he had a lot of workers that he didn't need. So he had to try to figure out how to deal with that. And when he became opposed to selling enslaved people, he felt that he was kind of saddled with this, this group of people whose labor he didn't need, but he had to provide food and clothing for. And he he saw that that was affecting his bottom line and his profits. So he there was an economic... Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, side to his opposition to slavery in addition to a moral side. On a national level, on a legislative level, Washington never comments publicly on slavery. He doesn't use his position as president to really lobby for uh, or lobby against slavery, I should say. Um, Uh, In private correspondence to family and friends, he does comment that he hopes that slavery will end, that he would support legislation that would gradually abolish slavery. Um, So this was something that had started to be enacted in northern states where slavery would be abolished in this very gradual fashion. So the the children of current enslaved people would be freed when they reached age 21, something that would phase it out in a way uh, the hope was that wouldn't disrupt kind of the social and ec- economic structure uh, too dramatically. And that did work in northern states because slavery was not quite as ingrained in society. Um, in southern states, uh it was a little trickier, but Washington did say that he, he would support such legislation nationally. Um, but he didn't actively seek to, uh, to, um, to, to get it to happen. Um, so he, uh, he holds these, these ideas and he is kind of quietly circulating them. Um, but he he has trouble kind of finding a way to actually enact them yeah. in his life and there there are a few barriers he one of the reasons that he's reticent about talking about slavery publicly is that he's very concerned about national unity and he knew that slavery was very contentious. In the early years of the Republic, the Constitutional Convention had almost been derailed because southern states were insistent upon retaining their rights to buy and own slaves. And so Washington knew that slavery had the potential to divide the nation and of course that was a, that was prescient because slavery did divide the nation yeah. less than 100 years later. Um, But he he was wary of kind of making abolition a cause because he worried that it would uh, disrupt the fragile union of states that he had invested so much time and energy in building. So... I like to think about Washington's views on slavery and where slavery kind of falls in his life in terms of priorities. So Mm -hmm. he was opposed to slavery, but a bigger priority for him and the one that he chose to value more was national unity. And you see other people during Washington's time who do feel that abolition is their Mm -hmm. cause and their first priority and who do make larger sacrifices to, towards that cause. And with Washington, it's on his mind, but not necessarily the thing that he wants to devote his life to.
0: Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Any sort of last thoughts?
1: Uh, well, I hope everyone listening will come see the exhibit if they haven't already. And if you're not able to, we also have a catalog that has a lot of the information presented in the exhibit that's available at our shops as well as on our website.
0: Okay, yeah, and uh, we will put a link on uh, the show page to to uh, both ticket information to visit uh, the site and a, and a link straight to that, uh, that museum catalog. So just check it out at mountvernon.org slash podcast. Jesse, thank you so much for for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much. This was really fun.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.